Welcome back to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. Blamo is a weekly podcast discussing the intersection of fashion, culture, and technology. My guest this week is American menswear designer Michael Bastian. Michael and I spoke about his career in menswear, the ups and downs of the fashion world, and why he still believes in buying less but buying better. Let's get to it. If you want to go ahead, you can introduce yourself. I'm I'm Michael Bastian, an American menswear designer. So I I'll start this off by saying how this was a bit of a work in progress for me. As soon as I started doing this podcast, one of the first people I wanted to talk to was you. And oh, I, I you. think it's because when I um started kind of like getting much more deeper into menswear, um, you were actually one of the first designers to like respond to me to talk mm-hmm, to me mm-hmm. and you know i don't know antonio when he was on this podcast antonio changoli your previous mm-hmm. um deputy creative director <laughs> he was telling me how you you know you read stuff that's written about you and you mm-hmm. you pay attention to other people that talk about you and like mm-hmm. you're aware of that stuff and mm-hmm. i think a lot of designers occasionally have this sort of um you know, they'll just put up a wall around everything else so they can kind of stay in their world. But the good thing is if you're constantly listening to other people too, you also hear how much people like your stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think when I first reached out to you, I was, this might've been 2006. And I was telling you how obsessed I was with the rugby shirt collar. Do you remember the like red and blue striped rugby shirt that had the kind of sewn in shirt collar? Yeah. It's like the greatest shirt of all time. I still have one. Very simple. (laughs) Yeah. Very With simple. no buttons. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of how you got into the menswear industry. Sure. And kind of like where your background was. Because I think from previous stuff that I've read and, and heard about you, I mean, you were, you basically didn't go to school to be a, a no. menswear designer. No, not at all. This is all, it's all been a big surprise. I went, I went to school. Well, first of all, I went to school at Babson, which is a really hardcore uh, business school, right? Mainly for entrepreneurial studies. And when I went in the in the early eighties, it it was kind of the Reagan era where everyone wanted to be on Wall Street. And I thought, well, maybe that's a little too dry for me. Maybe I want to get into advertising. But I, I didn't have a clear a clear idea of what I wanted to do, other than vaguely something in business, and for sure wanted to be in New York. Mm-hmm. Th- those are my goals. And, you know, it, it, I, I went through Babson all four years thinking I picked the wrong school. And right. then down the road, I ended up realizing I did pick the right school. You know, the things I learned there kind of set set me up to be able to do all this other stuff that I did. Right. Um. So, yeah, it did. The, 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 the path did not start out very linear. Let's put it that way. Right. And so what kind of got you into... The, into, the into menswear, menswear industry is this pre-bergdorf or is this yeah no it goes way pre-bergdorf um when i when i graduated i just i i honestly just took the first job that got me into new york and gave me a salary that i could pay some rent and right that was at a, a department store that doesn't exist anymore called abraham and strauss it was in brooklyn and um did that for a while and was about to be fired after a year because I couldn't figure out the business math, which is ironic because I had come from a business school. And um, uh, 
they kept moving me around. They moved me. Uh, I started in like handbags, and then I ended up in junior knits, and then I I just kept being bumped down, and then I ended up in carpets and rugs, which is kind of like God's waiting room, and <laughs> because nothing ever happened there, so they're like, okay, if you can't figure this out, yeah, we're gonna have to talk about you know next steps for you, and luckily. At the time, I had uh, a friend from from Wellesley who was working at a magazine called Avenue Magazine, Mm -hmm. and they needed, uh, I'll tell you how far back this goes. Uh, They hired a new fashion director named Ivy Becker, who had been at Vogue. And when Anna Wintour went to Vogue, she kind of cleared house, and Ivy was one of the people who left Vogue and went to Avenue to be the fashion director. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we're going back to like what eighty eight, eighty nine. Okay, and um, so she needed an assistant, and uh, my friend said, oh, "You can you can do this. You're looking for a new job," and I I did that. So suddenly I was in kind of in fashion. It was really more women's wear, although Avenue did cover a little men's wear. But I, I was an assistant. I was basically an intern that was running around picking up the garment bags. You know, dealing with the closet, all the all the stuff that everyone who kind of wants to take that first step in fashion has to do, and um, did that for a couple of years. Then went to Sotheby's, uh, which w- for nine years, which I, I always thought was going to end up being my career. Weirdly right. enough, I, I loved it there. Um, I got moved around. I was in marketing and PR. Then I was in the real estate division. And I was writing. Oh man, so like you're sure copy. I, I had I had my real estate license because everyone had to have the real estate license if you were dealing with the real estate division. Um, uh, to make extra money, I would sit in the booth in the auction house on the weekends and like hand out property brochures. Um, and so you were like a, a, a true Renaissance man. Well, no, it, Renaissance man, no, that that's glamorizing. Uh, actually, actually, what it was is like, and I don't know if you can still do this, but when you're in your 20s in New York, I feel like you want a new job, go out. Like, go out and hang out with your friends and go to parties and meet new people and let people know you're looking for a job. Because yeah. other, I, I know the people that I've hired a lot of times um, have come from friends and you know, I'll I'll also get a lot of resumes online or in the mail, but um, you know, it seems like the ones I hire kind of had a personal recommendation or something like that. So my my first little chain of jobs were were just some going to a party saying I need a new job, and somebody like, oh yeah, I, I heard of something, some friend had something going on. So um, yeah, I ended up at Sotheby's. I did that for a while, and when I was looking for a new job. <laughs> After doing that for nine years, it was one of those weird jobs where I could go to Christie's, maybe, but I wasn't in an expert department. I was in kind of a support department. Okay. You know, Sotheby's is a fine art collection. And here I was in marketing and PR and then real estate. And so there wasn't a clear line of where I could go. And I know that feeling. Yeah. You know, it's weird. (laughs) So I, again, I was kind of at ground zero with like, all right, I can do anything I want. And um, a friend of mine said, well, I have a friend who works at Tiffany, Robert Rufino, creative director, and he's looking for someone to do the tabletop program at Tiffany. Now, what, what that means is 
they used to do this. I don't think they do this anymore. But the the tabletop floor where you'd buy your china and silverware and all right. that stuff, uh, they would have celebrities come in and design a tabletop, uh, shop around, pick their favorite things, design some tabletop. Oh, and okay. my job was to be celebrity wrangler at Tiffany. So, you know. I'm pulling one out of the air, but like Susan Lucci one time designed a table. Well, she actually designed a big old pink bed. But like I <laughs> would shop around the store with Susan Lucci. We'd pick her china or silverware. Um, she'd give the I'd, me the idea, and we'd basically execute it. So, so that was a strange job, and you, you could say I was a little more in home. Yeah, you know, I was again. I wasn't. You say you work at Tiffany, and they think, oh, you're in you're in jewelry. No, I was kind of in the home area like weird celebrity part of it. Um, I'd always find these little strange pockets in interesting luxury companies and uh, did that for a little while. And then uh, a job opened up at Ralph Lauren and I had always wanted to work at Ralph Lauren. Always, always, always wanted to work at Ralph Lauren and um, applied like a zillion times. And finally this job opens up and it was, Actually, similar to what I was doing at Tiffany, it was in the mansion uh, installing the home collection changeovers. Now, okay. and I don't know if they still do this, but I don't no. know if the if the home collections in, in I think the they mansion. moved it out of the mansion. Yeah. But at the time, it was on the top floor, right. and two times a year, the whole floor would be ripped out, and we would reinstall like five new lifestyles. Um, and it was my job to kind of work with the creative department. To, to deal with that installation with the architects and buying extra props and working with the, the buyers for home. Um, and then once that was installed, hitting the road and going to like the Phoenix store, the Dallas store, the Los Angeles store, and just redoing that thing that we did in on, on Madison Avenue. Right. Um, and, and, what what a fun, cool, great job! I really enjoyed that job For sure. a lot, and um, it's just gr- great to to have the opportunity to work at Ralph Lauren. That really is the best training program for any any luxury brand because you know the the whole point of that store, that experience, that brand was like to to you know dream a little. You know, and create a, a full world out of nothing, you know? Right. So that, and, and also be willing to like rip that world down and redo it overnight if it wasn't 100% perfect, <laughs> right. you know, like sure. there's, which is, which is a good, good learning experience. And I'm, and I'm sure uh, Antonio said great yeah. things about Ralph Lauren as I mean, well. Like once you've done that, it just sets you up. Yeah. I don't know anyone more or less who, who's worked at Ralph Lauren. And, and had a bad experience in terms of like every you know so many people like what you referred to you talked about as like a training program at almost university yeah. in a sense where like you know i mean it's this job and career but at, on you know i and i think the other thing is and maybe this is me speculating a bit but like it definitely from other people i've talked to it teaches them more about kind of how to hone in on some of their design stuff because mm-hmm. the brand identity of ralph warren is so uh, strict and, mm-hmm. and narrow in a good way. So you, it's you're not really going to have someone just like pull a bunch of pastels and stuff out. Like no, well, it's strict, but it allows you to to riff endlessly right. on, a, on a core idea and and try to freshen up that idea or push it forward in a way that you didn't really think about. Which is 
which is actually one of the hardest things in the world to do as a designer. It's easy to come up with something that no one's seen before. Um, usually there's a reason, you know, it doesn't function, it doesn't really work. Uh, but to to take something that everybody really knows the the general gestalt of and and dust it off and make it cooler and come up with a new angle to it um is really interesting to me like like riffing on something right. um and and that's something you learn at Ralph Lauren there, you always had to stay kind of true to to the to the brand and and what was built before but they they loved it when you could like take take find a new crevice that wasn't explored within that world <laughs> right you know um but again they were also very very uh quick to like rip something down if it wasn't a hundred percent you know which was also good because you you learn like you got to keep pushing yourself you sure. know and i and i have friends who work now at, at Condé Nast at vogue and gq and things like that and they they really kind of roll the same way you know um you think people who work at, at ralph or gq like have a pretty easy life and these people are honestly like i think they work harder than anyone i know because you see them and they look a certain way i think to get these jobs you kind of have to you kind of have to fill the role a little bit sure um but then also you have to be very smart and then also you have to be very hardworking, and <laughs> you also have to be willing to like yeah. There's a lot work of hustle night, involved in that. Yeah. Ton of hustle, and also be able to uh, to not be sensitive about throwing out an idea and starting all over again. Right, happens all the time. And you know, some people, I would I would say this to any any of the people that work with me, like that's really part of the job to not be sensitive about someone saying, you know, okay, that's not working. We got to start all over. Like starting all over sometimes is the best thing that can happen to to you. Interesting. Yeah. So so, so there I was at Ralph Lauren, right? Loving it, and an interesting thing happened. Um, at the time, Peter Rizzo was the president of Ralph Lauren Retail, and Robert Burke, who uh, to this day is still one of my best friends, was working with me at Ralph Lauren, and. Um, Peter left Bergdorf to go to Bergdorf Goodman. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon after, he took Robert Burke with him to be the fashion director of Bergdorf Goodman. And uh, maybe a year later, uh, Robert gave me a call and he said, okay, this is, this is going to be a little interesting chat, but um, we're looking for a new men's fashion director at, at Bergdorf. And would you, be, would you be open to the idea of coming in and just talking about this? said well you know wow i'm really super flattered but i've never been in menswear like i've been on the side of companies that have been in menswear but right i'm weirdly enough going down this home road um you know why why do you think i could do this and he's like well you know the men's store um at the time we're going back well 10 15 years now mm -hmm. um and he was like, the, you know, the home, the men's store is kind of where your rich grandfather will buy his socks and underwear on his way home from work. Mm -hmm. You know, the the customer is very local, Upper East Side guy lives or lives in the fifties, and he'll walk yeah. by Ver Bergdorf and have a very, you know, the customers that they have like love it. It's their hometown store, but um, you know, it's a little snoozy. And so he said, you know, look, 
We are also doing a lot of work on the women's side, and obviously that's a much bigger business and higher profile. And, um, you know, with men's, we feel that we like your eye, we like the way you dress yourself, you got a good work ethic, we know you. Um, and the, 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 the idea kind of was, you know, we, you can't make it any worse. <laughs> and, I, and i don't mean that disrespectfully no. it's just like we need to we need to blow the dust off so anything you you bring to the table because you you is, came in during a big transition period and so like huge that was, transition that period. was a goal is to more or less kind of gut the the whole men's side of bergdorf pretty much and i was saying i don't i don't I can't remember the last time I had been at Bergdorf Men's. Honestly, like I, yeah. I shopped a lot of Barney's and or Saks or, um, particularly Barney's when it was downtown because it was close to my apartment. And, um, and then you know I started working for Ralph Lauren, and you only wear Ralph Lauren. And, um, uh, so, uh, I said, well, what have I got to lose? You know, this this sounds yeah. like a lot of fun, and I've got this great support and. Let's let's try this. And um I think going into that job a little bit naive was a was a good thing because I didn't know what what to do, what not to do. I just did what I thought was was best and basically went into it um you know, a fashion director and I went in as fashion director of men's. So, um fashion director is a weird job because you're not actually buying anything. You're working with the with the buying team. Um, and the management of the store to give a vibe for a season to say, all right, this is what's happening. This is what I think we should stand for. Um, uh, and then you go out, you go into the market, you go to, you start with pity and you go to all the shows mm -hmm. and um, you, you come back and you put the store together kind of the way you, you see it. Um, mm -hmm. And at the time, it was very personal because we were all we were all new and we were all buying the stuff we wanted to wear ourselves um and it was a weird time in men's um because we were coming out of a a real designer moment by designer moment i mean prada was really on fire and uh dior men's was was really strong at the time yeah, because this um, is two thousand Lang. Five, four, five? Two thousand. No, this is like two thousand. Okay. Yeah. And I, I can always I can always pinpoint it because I was at Ralph Lauren when it became two thousand, but I was at Bergdorf on nine eleven because I was in the air. Oh wow. So I know exactly when the when that that job change happened. So like late two thousand yeah, I think it was like November two thousand I started at okay. Bergdorf. Because I, I went right into like Christmas windows at the men's store. Um, so, so yeah, it was. We were all a little naive in a way, but I think that helped us because we were just really buying the things we wanted to wear ourselves and going to Pitti and um, discovering these brands that maybe were a little under the radar. Um, that you know, like remember back then, like Brunello was really a tiny brand etra was a For tiny sure. brand yeah. like these were these were brands that were like maybe a tea stand at, at bergdorf um so it was that weird transition from brands and logos to kind of that hashtag menswear moment yeah where it was more about heritage and makers and obscure old brands 
and dressing up again in a weird way. And um, in my opinion, being a little more clever with how you're putting yourself together. It wasn't just like names and brands and logos all over the place. It was thinking a little bit more about it. Um, and I don't know if it was because of the economy or or what, but um, menswear goes in big cycles. And right. that was, we just happened to be catching this one transition, um, like I said, between a very designery branded moment, European, really a European moment, mm -hmm. to to this menswear moment, hashtag menswear moment, um, for lack of a better term. And, um, you know, when I was on the floor, the third floor, the designer floor at Bergdorf, uh, it was... The, the idea at the time was there was going to be an American half and a European half. And it really became just a big old European floor. There well, was very little there American. There wasn't that much American design. There, really. there really wasn't at the yeah. time. You know, there was John Vervedos. There was the tail end of, of Donna Karen men's. Right. Like the high, high, high end Donna Karen men's. Um, and that was really it. There was, I remember when I got there there was a huge room for jill sander there was a big room for dolce um you know but as far as american designers go there weren't there weren't that many um really i'm and i mean it like really john vervados is the only one i can remember that we walked in that that we didn't like get rid of you know like because it, yeah. it was like the only american doing something interesting at the time and so this is where to just speak for yourself for a little yep. bit. So far, you've been extremely humble, mm -hmm. right? Which mm -hmm. is great. And uh, it's, but this, I think, it, it is where you. I don't know if you just had like kerosene poured on you, <laughs> but then you just really like became on fire because then you change Bergdorf and basically make Bergdorf men's cool again. And it's you, you know, know why that happened. I think it happened because. It was so small. And remember, there's only one Bergdorf. It's the last of the Mohicans. There's right. one Bergdorf. But it's also where everyone looks to for what's happening. Yeah. It's extremely influential. Yeah. And yeah. we were treating it as if it was just one little store in New Orleans or Portland. It was just <laughs> our store. We're going to do what we want with it. Right. We weren't really paying attention so much to what everyone else was doing. Um, we were like a tiny group just rolling together, traveling together actually having a really good time together um and we all we all were kind of looking for the same thing and getting excited about the same stuff and brands and people and um and the i think the thing that really made it come together was i was able to really get in the windows and pull the looks that were in the windows i was able to dress the mannequins you know, but Bergdorf obviously has a huge creative services team and a, an amazing window team mm -hmm. led by David Hoey and Linda Fargo at the time. And, um, you know, but to, to be able to pick the clothes and actually be in the window and placing those mannequins and styling them the right way. I mean, walk by these windows and you you can sometimes realize, all right, someone with good taste pulled the look, but then a rigger did it and it's pinned weirdly and the pants too high and the <laughs> yeah. accessories are tied, the scarf's tied wrong. Oh, and, yeah. You know, so so to be able to kind of do the whole thing, maybe which came from the Ralph Lauren experience of like, it's your responsibility to do it and make sure it's perfect when you walk out of there. Um, 
half of us had come from Ralph Lauren. So we all kind of had that attitude. Like I'm not walking out of this window till it's perfect. And, um, so, so suddenly people started noticing it and it, it was interesting. And we were at the time, this sounds obvious, but we were mixing designers. We were mixing brands. Like at the time designers, like our stores would put, you know, you'd have a Zenia window, you yeah. had an Armani window, and you wouldn't mix up the brands. And Peter Rizzo had this great idea, or maybe Robert Burke did, had this idea of mixing things up in the pit when you walk into Bergdorf. Right. And it was called the pit at the time. And Ron Frash was also at Bergdorf. I, I can't forget him because he's amazing as well. And um, with the pit, we were taking things off the third floor, the suit floor, um, and mixing it all together. <clears throat> and it was kind of the first time that a, a, a real store that people were had their eye on was, was saying, all right, this is how real guys are dressing. You're mixing your tailor clothes with your sportswear and mixing a keton jacket with a pair of Dolce jeans. And, you know, it, honestly, in the beginning, it didn't go over well with the designers and the brands because they were used to seeing it as they showed it. Yeah. But I think they they gave it a minute and came and took a look and they were kind of happy to see how we were showing them maybe not exactly how they showed themselves but an, another way that that was equally cool um so so that 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 so, to me was the magic sauce of that that golden moment at Bergdorf from what i read and to kind of to move things along a bit you yep. uh you were really interested in khakis yeah no here's a here's the real story um so i was there i was at bergdorf men's for five years and you know i got the itch to maybe i needed to try something else and i feel like we really did did the job we set out to do here and sure. what else can i do and again i was in another weird job that where do you go from here um I tend to find these jobs with the where do you go right. chapter. Well, I mean, it, it in a way, it was kind of like you conquered it and you're ready to move on. Because, yeah, you were at Bergdorf's for five years, but you also took it from, you know, you and the team took mm -hmm. it from a place that no one really wanted to shop to or, mm -hmm. or more or less cared about that much. To, well, it just wasn't on people's radar as much as it should have been. Yeah. You know? And, and then you and your team come along and you, you know, you reinvent how Bergdorf's was. You change how it was looking, you, you, you're mixing stuff together, and all of a sudden sales are up, and you're like, okay, cool, I think I'm done here. Maybe yeah, it's time it for was, the next challenge. It was just, it, uh, you know, certain people who had been on that original team when I got there were moving around, like Ron Fresh right. had moved on, and Peter Rizzo left, and um, and yeah, it, it just felt like, all right, you know, the, the magic was this original team, and I could stay, but... Maybe there's something else out there. So, um, you know, if you have a job like that, you're you're at Burger Goodman. Your options are you could go to another store, mm -hmm. try to be another fashion director somewhere. But that that wasn't so interesting to me because I felt like I'll never have that same freedom that I had here. And right now, I'm dealing with a New York store. It's my backyard. I'm making it you know, to the best of my ability where I would want to shop myself. And if you go to another store with like 24 doors, you're always having to think, all right, you know, this is great for New York, but is it going to work in Dallas? Is right. it going to work in San Francisco? Right. You know, it's a much, it's a different, it's a different ball of wax, you know? And I feel like I had 
I was good at that one particular thing. So, so one of the things that I realized when I was doing the job was there were every season we would start the season with a list of these are the things we really want to find. You know, so before we went out to Pitti, we would say we need to find this, 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 and this. And sometimes we found it, and sometimes we didn't. And we'd roll up the buys, and we'd say, "Well, we still haven't found that perfect skinny chino, or we still haven't found that." Um, slightly shrunken cashmere crew neck. Right. That, you know, all the all the details are right. And we were doing a lot of it in private label. Um and and it was great and it worked and we were doing like hand knit sweaters and putting them in the pit and uh pants and just everything. And um and I thought, well, you know, if I'm not able to find these things that I'm wanting myself. And I'm literally looking at every showroom, every runway show, every booth at Pity. And we work Pity. Like, we work the whole three days from... You mean you guys just didn't walk to go get your photos taken? No, 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 no. <laughs> it was... Yeah, I know. We would be the last ones out at the end of the day. And the first one's pre- in the next day. This is all priest, all that bullshit. Yeah. yeah. No, this is like... It was a job. And we really did it and then we would go back to the hotel and then meet again and some people would have to run off and do certain vendors or designers and sure. recap and no so there's it was this gap in your buys now and so we had them do it ourselves yeah. so that was a big part of it and um brunella cuccinelli actually did a lot of the private label for Bergdorf at the time mm-hmm. um and i me being in charge of the private label program would go with the buyer to Solomeo and work with Brunella to do these things that we couldn't find ourselves, mainly sweaters, pants. Um, you know, this is before Brunella even did woven shirts. We got him started with shirts at the time. And, um, you know, and so I, I started thinking like, well, if we, we can't find it, I can't find what I personally want. And I'm seeing everything. There's got to be other guys out there that can't are looking for the same thing and maybe don't have access to Bergdorf Goodman. Um, there was no online at the time. So I said, maybe th- this is a business idea. And I thought, all right, I'll, what if I just start with chinos? What if I just start with the perfect pant? Um, Cause I can't find the one I want. And, you know, I had one from Incotags, but there was one little thing or two that I wasn't happy about. And I had one from Metro and sure. I was, I was like buying them all over the place, but nothing was perfect. <clears throat> and I thought, all right, I can do this job, keep my job, and have this little chino business on the side, or like let's say sport pan business on the side. And I knew enough factories in Italy that were willing to work with me. So I go to Robert Burke, who who's my boss at the time, mm-hmm. and and we were we were always very open about you know ideas, and maybe it's time to do something else, or maybe there's another thing going on, and um. I tell him my idea and he's like, look, you basically figured out a way to have no job because as if you keep your job, we can't buy anything that an employee makes. It's just a rule, a Neiman Marcus rule. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And and he goes, and (laughs) you sure as hell cannot be selling your stuff to Barney's or Saks because you're the Bergdorf fashion director. So so basically you you came up with an idea, you came up with a business that's no business you know you can't so he's like if you want to do this it's a good idea but i have two suggestions for you one you got to just take the leap and do do the whole thing and um two like why stop at pants 
you know, right. to go, there's, we're looking for shirts, we're looking for these sweaters, you know, be that brand, be that guy. And the idea was American, kind of classic American stuff done at a luxury level. Right. That, that was a whole founding premise. And like, no also, tricks, no bells and whistles, no logos, no runway show. Just, I'm going to give you the perfect pants made in Italy, the perfect shrunken cashmere sweater, a nice fitted button down. You know, these things were hard to find. That American style done at a luxury level. Right. And this is also at the time where <clears throat> no one was doing this. And also in a cultural time where everyone... <laughs> started to want this kind of wanted it at the same time and was were looking around and not able to find it because yeah the whole way that guys were dressing for work was changing mm -hmm. you know you didn't have to wear a suit and in the past guys had two wardrobes two sides of their closet they're going to work clothes and they're not going to work clothes kind of they're going out or weekend clothes right and all of a sudden you were able to mix it up and what we realized was all right, we can do it when we have all the resources in the world and every vendor in front of us. I can make a, all these great rigs and put them in the window. And um, that that's cool. But if you're the average guy, maybe you put all your time and effort into your, your suits and your ties and your dress shirts. And, you know, you're, you're, you're going out or your weekend clothes where you didn't think too much about it. It was like a pair of khakis, a polo shirt, you know, a baggy button down. Um, Okay, so what happens when you can suddenly wear a blazer with a pair of chinos? And, like, you've got yeah. a Keaton blazer and a pair of Gap chinos. Right. You know, there was, like, this weird disconnect that it wasn't going together. Like, the sportswear wasn't elevated enough to be able to work back to the tailored clothing and the beautiful sweaters that you might have had. Um, so the the idea was to approach it as a guy has one wardrobe and why shouldn't your bathing suit get as much attention as your tuxedo yeah and i mean in this when this happened you you started your collection and i think mm -hmm. your first collection was oh six oh six follow yeah. six and that changed everything in terms of like it, it's right at this time and it's also right before the financial crisis too yeah and every you know and so it your message, and you're, I've said this so many times, but I, you're the person who came up with this, the whole buy less but buy better. Like that yeah. phrase, that's I've ripped from every Michael Bastion interview. And Thank every, you. You know, <laughs> like I, I you're really, the guy who came up with that. I really believe that. Because yeah. when, I, when I said, all right, I'm going to do my own line, um, I opened up my own closet. And when, you're, when you work at Ralph, you work at Bergdorf, I, had, I had just had tons of stuff that I never wore. So I said, let's just start with, the the front ten percent that I that I wear every day, right? And let's just try to do a better version of that stuff. And some of that ten percent was things I had from college, or like this, like I said, this random pair of Incotex chinos and um, an old Barbera sport coat that the lining was ripped out. And I just thought, all right, let's start here, and maybe you know, instead of spending all your money on a ton of stuff really invest in this stuff and hopefully you wear it for 10 years and hopefully it, you know your your taste doesn't change so much and you know you really get your money's worth out of it you get a real bang yeah. for your buck with it um it's it's kind of like uh you know things you buy at hermes i mean when you buy it it hurts like hell because it's so expensive <laughs> but then you forget about it yeah and you use it and you're happy to, you know we like 
once you've paid the bill, you're happy you did it. Yeah. And you know, and you and you never get rid of it and it's amazing and you're proud of it and you pass it down to your kids or whatever. But um, you know, th- people used to do that with like sweaters. <laughs> I was thinking and I That's true. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and like true. your not just your watch, like people really kind of took care of their clothes a little more and patched the elbows and I don't know. It, it's weirdly enough, it's like a weird Yankee mentality that um I'm going to buy something really perfect and I'm really going to wear the hell out of it. Um, so yeah. So, so that's the, I want to talk about one of your collections Yeah, and this, this to me is where I think it's, it's one of my favorite collections of like menswear period. Mm. I mean, I, I like Raph. I like Rick Owens. I like all that other stuff, but mm-hmm. I think if there's one collection that I've always looked at over the years and tried mm-hmm. to kind of emulate or rip off, mm-hmm. it was the JFK Jr. collection that you did. Mm-hmm. And this is a fall winter collection. Um, I think it was 2007 or eight because eight was Hitchhiker. Seven. Yeah. Then. And so this collection, and I'll, I'll put a link to it on the show notes when I, when I publish mm-hmm. it, but like you had the duffel coat mm-hmm. that was brought back. And, and I think, you know, Tim Blanks has said before that you were the savior of American menswear. Mm. And that to me, that collection, uh, I mean, you've done tons of other collections, but I think the part that I, that really, uh, made me fall in love with this too, is also, I was a guy who I didn't have much, mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. but I could see like what I wanted to look like. Mm-hmm. And the the best part, and, and I think this is one of the things that you, you know, kind of glossed over, which is good because I get to talk about it now is. I don't know anyone else who puts stuff together the way you do. Thank you. You know, the, 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 this is also when people are talking about sprezzatura and the whole purposeful dishevelment, which is just bad. But <laughs> yours was perfect. Like the, the, the sleeves that were rolled up, you had the, the sport coats. And it was like, look, these are these, you know, runway collections that people are showing at the time. Mm-hmm. And people would look at it and you're like, well, I can never do that. Well, I don't want it to look like that. And then I would see a Michael Bastion collection and I'm like, oh yeah, I could do that. It was so approachable and exciting. And, and I mean, serious, it, it for me got me as deep as ever in menswear. And I, I credit that. And I've told so many people about that collection of how, you know what a weird, and that's okay. That's a weird collection in, in a couple ways. That was. All right, my first collection was Follow Seven. So yeah. by fall or Follow Six. So by Follow Seven, I was kind of new to the lay of the land. I was working with the Brunello Cuccinelli people in their factory and going back and forth to Solomeo. And um, the first collection was really just a handful of sweater, shirts, pants, and some outerwear and a really weird shearling bathrobe that i don't know why i did but then um and then spring we took a few more steps but by that fall i was kind of comfortable working with the factory and and i was realizing these these people can do anything they can do anything in the world right and is if i can just come up with the ideas and um it 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 was a huge collection this is this is one of the the amazing things I had with working with the Brunello Cuccinelli people and Brunello. Um, I had the freedom to make a big collection and edit down later. Right. Um, so 
we're talking like 250 pieces. Holy. Two, two, yeah, just, it was enormous. And um, uh, what happened was we had all of the clothes in one room and we decided to start shooting lookbooks. Mm-hmm. And we had a photographer for one day. And this is when. This is John Esposito. Well, John's our model. John was our oh. model. The photographer, I don't even remember his name, but he was a guy that um, was in Milan that the Brunello people worked with. And. Um, we had them for one day and we had all these clothes and I didn't have, uh, I didn't have a, anyone working with me and we just had to on the spot create these looks. And I think we got something crazy, like 40, 50 looks, wow. 40, 50 looks. And That's they were, yeah, it's a yeah. lot. And it wasn't like they were runway looks. It was just like, they were looks yeah. just put together. And you know, it wasn't, it's interesting. This is where the whole Bergdorf comes into what I, what I started doing when I was a designer, because when you're doing the windows and you have this big mass of clothes, um, you know, I don't know if Antonio told you this secret, but when you're making looks, start with the pants. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we put all the pants together, all the shirts, sweaters, blah, blah, blah. And we throw a pair of pants on and just be like, okay, what's this guy's look? And then build it around the pants. And that's how we would do the mannequins in the window at Bergdorf. And, Suddenly we have 50 looks. And if you tear those looks apart, all the pieces are really simple, but they're all, they were all really well made. Um, you could turn them inside out. There were little tricks. There were jokes. Like a lot of what the brand became known for, the first baby steps happened in that season. There was a, there was a pair of chinos that um, it was a limited edition of 50 chinos that had 50 keys like antique keys hanging off of the the waistband um and there was like a a patch inside that i i can't remember i don't even want to quote myself now but it was like this little story about how you know we're all like these lost keys looking for where we where we fit and this pan is number 10 of 50 and you know and that you know, we were able to do those beautiful little tiny moments that unless you really got up close and turned the pan inside out and noticed that, you you, you might never see. It was one of the scenes that we were playing with words, with color. And um, the fact that the whole inspiration was JFK Jr. really went back to this idea of a cool American guy who's not necessarily a fashion guy who um, mixes the tailored and the sportswear and you know, when you're talking about men's icons, everyone goes back to JFK himself. And right. There's like a really cliched folder full of men's inspiration that I try yeah. to avoid as much as I can. But um, <laughs> he was, he's a good one. Like, you know, I always felt like we lost, we lost a really good one. Yeah. You know, and it would have been interesting to see how, how he evolved. But if, you know, when they're like, what, what celebrity do you really admire in their style? And it's so hard now because, so much of it is like done by a stylist, you yeah. know, that you don't, There's unless you see individual celebrity style. No, unless you're friends with a celebrity and you know them off offline, you know, you don't, you really can't tell what is their personal style and what, what isn't. Um, but, but him, you could always tell it was his style. And it's, it's sad because now there's a whole generation of guys interested in menswear that don't even remember him or what he kind of was doing or stood for. But, um, so yeah, that that also was my chance to take a, a style hero of mine and really drill down in it with like the 
the weird sweaters and there was a bike in that collection and um you know this is you had the rugby shirt with the yeah and that duffel coat is, with the weird hardware and yeah, the, the the fireman's yeah, yeah the the inspiration folders I, it's not like i kept a notebook and i don't really sketch that well so i would keep tear sheets and a big one of those big folders with the elastic band around it and nice. it, and it just got so huge and i'm traveling back and forth to italy with it and it's like 10 pounds and there's hardware falling out of it um and yeah that 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 was a fun one that was a good one yeah um and and the good part is like from then you know obviously you continue to make you know because there was hitchhiker after that mm -hmm. and you know then i uh you know you continued to grow as a designer but like for me that that collection uh, really made me understand like who you were. Thank you. That and, that and, was a that was probably the first one that really started getting attention. Yeah, I mean, because um, then you know you won a CFDA award in. Well, that was t- took to two thousand eleven. Eleven. Yeah, yeah, that took a little bit of time. Well, <laughs> like I, I was up to bat five times for that. <laughs> well, I mean, the good part is you know throughout a lot of that stuff, you know this is when the kind of hashtag menswear movement starts is around 2008, yeah. nine. And it was funny because Lawrence Schwassman and I, I mean, we had started a, we basically, I don't mean, I don't know if you knew this. We had started a clothing label that was more or less designed to make what you were making, but just have it be cheaper. I mean, because the, the whole Anglo American look, I mean, you were um, the guy that, that was like, you know, the best stuff that you want ends up being made in Italy. But you're an American, and so you have this American look to you, and you're going to wear it like an American. Right. And that was the weird thing that people weren't understanding in the beginning. Like, I got, I got, you guys got it. You know, I I was having a a very cool time having conversation with the the client, the end consumer, because there was a group of guys who were looking for this thing. But, like, the fashion press... Other than GQ, didn't really know what to make of this. Like women's wear daily, and right. the, in the beginning, like all my reviews were, he's a retailer designing for retailers because it's really merchandised and it's very sellable. It's not tricked out. They they didn't know exactly what to do with me, and uh, you know, I was getting compared to J Crew and and all this stuff, and I was like, you're missing the whole point. I'm I'm taking. Yeah, like a pan is a pan is a pan is a pan, but to certain guys, they're looking for this very specific pant made in a certain way with this fabric and this button and all of that. And um, and I, I always would say I'm not trying to be everything to everybody, and I would always compare it to sports because to some guys, say you love the Yankees, you can get a box seat, you can get you know really good seats, you or you can watch it on TV. You know, you, you, everyone might like baseball, but to some, it's more important. Oh, interesting. This, yeah. is, this is important to me. This is where I want to put my money. And it's the same with, uh, say, a pair of chinos. There's some guys, they really want that perfectly thought out, perfectly fitted pair. And then for some, you know, the ones they get, at, I'm not, I'm not going to give a brand, but like you just go out, walk down the street and get a pair of chinos. Right. It was more function and less and less about like, really like saying who you were the the, you the, the tiny little details yeah. yeah and i was thinking you know all right it's it's kind of approaching sports where the way guys would approach their suit and get all crazy about the full canvas and turning it inside out and all of that stuff so um you know that that took a little bit of education to get to get some people up to speed on what what the 
what I was trying to do. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, I think in I'm not saying that the recession was good for anyone, <laughs> but I think you know people did start to pay more attention, you know, when this this buy less buy better thing. You know, my best year, across. my best year was my best years were 2008, 2009, and that yeah. was the height of the recession. Yeah. You know, the the thing about about recessions and money is um when you have a luxury brand is there's always going to be people that have a lot of money um so i i I was lucky in a weird way in that i came out at the right time because there was that that moment Mm -hmm. for that kind of merchandise Mm -hmm. um and i had a lot of great retail support particularly bergdorf um so yeah the, the the recession i don't really I wasn't really hit so hard by that. Yeah. Well, really I mean, that's, no. that's great. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more. First off, you've been incredibly gracious. Explain oh, so much. This has been awesome. I want to talk more about kind of what's happening now. Mm. Um, Now's really exciting. Now's yeah. really exciting. Cause fast forward 10 years from when I started. So right. fall 2016 was my 10th year anniversary. And, um, you know, I, like I was saying, there's there's these cycles in menswear, and mm-hmm. it seems like after a great ten year run, that kind of hashtag menswear moment, yep, is is not kind of on the cutting edge at the moment. Maybe you know that got played out a little bit. So if you're if you're a designer like me who really is designing things that they want to wear and doesn't, I don't really believe in kind of changing my spots every season based on what the new thing is sure i really don't no, well, I, that's that's good you know and i i so i mean authenticity it, is much more difficult to find these days it is it is because everyone you you have these businesses and you need to keep a certain level up and yeah um the whole retail landscape has changed and people are buying more online and um in a weird way i feel we're back into a brand label logo designer moment mm-hmm. you know i feel like it's we're it's another european moment yeah like that that american moment that started really with tom brown and band of outsiders and then i came out after them and there was like a wave remember adam kimmel yeah. and simon spur and there 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 were a bunch um uh patrick arvel uh you know it it was our time yeah. it was our time and now it's a new time with with new brands and everyone's excited about it doesn't mean that we disappear it's just this is the way the world works this is the cycle of of fashion and the cycle of menswear so you know i had to i had to figure out something something new and in the 10 years that i was doing my brand you know 4 years into it i bought myself back from brunello cuccinelli i bought my license back he had right. He was he had the deal to produce and distribute my line and um you know I got the gig at Gantt, Gantt by Michael Bastion, which mm-hmm. allowed me to buy myself back from from Brunello. Which, you know, to to <clears throat> sidetrack for a second here, like that is really rare these days that a designer gets the ability to buy themselves back. You know, I mean It is rare. Yeah. But but it it's not like we had a bad relationship. I think it was at the time, I don't. I can't speak for him, but my attitude is he get he gave me like the greatest gift. He got sure. he gave me a brand, got it off the ground, 
we ran with it for a while. And I feel like at that time, he was also, his brand was exploding. He's now yeah. a multi-billion dollar brand. And I think, you know, having this little American project on the side wasn't making sense with how his brand was scaling up. And I think, you know, it was like, it, the time was right for us to say, great, let's, let's, let, I'm going to go do this on my own. Right. Somehow. Um, so, Remember, we took a season off, yep. and we regrouped, and we got new factories, um, and we came back with that James Dean collection in 2000, summer 12? I think summer 12 was mm-hmm. James Dean. And, um, you know, so with my brand, I had five years with a partner, five years on my own, and in the meantime, I had done the Gamp on Michael Bastion thing, and that was a lot of fun because finally, the one complaint about what I did was the price. It was always the price. People right. people got it, but you know, some actually got like personally offended at the price, which I could never understand because, look, yeah, that's I don't know, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. There was there was this perception <laughs> that that money was going straight in my pocket, and the reality was. My margins were like razor thin, yeah. and you know, I was just—I don't I, think people understand how a lot of that stuff works. Uh, I, but I've been in the okay. same little rental apartment my whole entire adult life. You know, nothing really <laughs> changed in my life. You know, you didn't have a Tom Ford compound. No, no, no. I made money and I went back into the business. Sure, and sure. um, so uh, you know, it, after doing the Gant thing. That ran its course. Then I did the Uniqlo by Michael Bastian with the um, the polo shirts, and that went on for three seasons, three or four seasons. Right, and it it was fun to do these other projects that were much more accessible. You know, I would I would play this game when Uniqlo came out. Um, it was a lot of fun because I'd walk around on, in the village down in Soho, and I'd count how many times I saw the polo, one of my polos, and it was yeah. great. And one day we got up I to like. 15 and you know when it first came out and it was getting a lot of press and it was so much fun and it was a whole new thrill to being a designer to actually see your clothes walking around right you know, if that makes sense because you know with my little designer line it never was a huge line it never was like crazy widely distributed it never was a huge business it was really a little bit of a labor of love um that was me making the things i wanted to wear myself so to finally see stuff that I designed walking around was was an epiphany. And um, in when was it? Like May of fifteen. We're really coming. I'm really tying up all the loose ends now because Babson College called me back as Entrepreneur of the Year. Oh, for, for yeah, in May fifteen, and I go there and. It, it's it's a huge honor and sure. you know i'm the outlier of the babson alum it's all like wall street guys and accountants and econo- economists and tons of entrepreneurs and you know here i am in this in this weird little fashion business so i'm trying to explain to these students you know how the fashion business works and um i'm listening i was judging uh entrepreneurial classes like uh new new ideas and new businesses that they created and some of these kids were coming up with these great ideas that were actually like from their college dorm room making more money than i've been making in my brand for 10 years <laughs> and you know like the, if it didn't work they'd be onto the next brand and like i remember one was like 
the guys that invented paint that is like dry erase paint. So you can put it in your conference room and you can write on it and then dry erase it off. And and it's like, wow, that's a great idea. And another guy was making a desktop for third world countries that kids could write on because paper is actually a rare commodity in some of these third world countries. And and it, it got me thinking like, yeah, do you know, thank you for honoring me with this award, but like, what have I actually achieved? You know, is this a business? And my accountants, this is funny. My accounts always said to me, like, actually, MB, you don't have a business. You have a very expensive hobby. (laughs) 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 They said, your your business actually depends on you having other jobs to support your business. So you see, when I, when I took my company back, it, it it was my dime paying for these shows and yeah. production and yeah. staff and, and office that stuff is and not ex- travel. Not cheap. No, and it's crazy because I rolled out of the Brunello experience, and I had the Gantt going on, and then the Uniqlo going on, and it, I was able to to do it. You know, I was able to cover cover it all without right. really. I was so busy on the road all the time and working so hard. I really wasn't conscious of my burn rate, which was astounding you know and then um i was like thinking this has been going on for 10 years why am i not making more money why is this never gonna get off the ground why when is this baby ever gonna support himself right and and so i'm thinking all right i gotta i gotta figure something out i really gotta figure something out and um that's when i started taking these meetings with outside investors and consultants and figuring out what's the best way to take what i do um and and get it on more people's backs more guys backs and also be able to access um certain categories i never could do on my own you know like shoes or eyewear you know you need to kind of be a bigger brand with some muscle behind you to get into those other classifications so um you know uh after looking at a lot of different options, I thought the best one for me was to get a partner um, called Blue Star Alliance. And the idea is to create a secondary line um, that's more affordable. So right. finally, instead of doing another line that's Michael Bastion for someone or someone X Michael Bastion to do a true Michael Bastion line that's more accessible, more right. approachable. Um, which is kind of at label. that contempt, which is now it's called Michael Bastion Gray Label. So um, that that's really been my focus, I would say, for the last year. Like we just now have the first product online in mm-hmm. stores, um, and you know that that's how the the business evolved. The Michael Bastion collection still still going on. It's just right now it's a little bit on the back burner until I get, you know, I've got, I've got a baby that needs a lot of attention right now. For sure. Um, and also I feel like retail's changing. The world is changing and I'm not letting go of that, um, kind of made in Italy, super perfect concept. I just want to figure out right now, if, since I always use myself as, you know, the, the canary in the coal mine, what am I looking for right now? Like right now, I'm looking for the stuff that we're doing at Gray Label. Like the, to to have a shoe license and be able to design shoe collections is 
an epiphany. I, I the, the shoes. Are, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Like the shoes yeah. I've did before were kind of just runway only Stubbs and Wooten and they were gorgeous, but they never got made. It was never something, you know, if you're right. lucky, you got a pair in my sample sale, but it, it never was a business. And, you know, the, the, I really attribute it to that, to Babson kind of coming back into my life and shaking me up a little and being like, okay, you've got an idea. Now, how do you turn this into a business? Right. You know? and, but you were called out there because of your achievements and accomplishments. Yeah. But in a way, you end up being more inspired by <laughs> these students, <laughs> yeah. right? And and the and the school and um you know, and there and it's not that the idea was wrong. Uh my original idea had had any problem with it. It's just like, you know, we're in a cyclical business. We're in fashion and you're going to have ups and downs and I had been doing this on my own. Right. For, for so long and i could have kept going exactly the way i was going and taking on other projects to support my project but why why not make this into a success on its own why not have the baby stand on its own two feet sure so so that's what's really exciting to me right now that's i mean that's pretty incredible it is it's so much fun um we just had our our first party at Bloomingdale's. Bloomingdale's is the first store to really get behind it the yeah. first season, but season two, fall 17, it's going to be pretty much everywhere. It'll be in Saks, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Lord & Taylor online. Like um, all of those places, their online component. And we're working really hard to get our, our own online up and running. That's you great. know, like a michaelbastion.com that'll have collection for sale. We'll have gray label for sale. That's really the future. That's where I, I want to have everything available in one spot. So, yeah. you know, we just shot our first lookbook not too long ago. Um, and it feels to me like that season you were talking about. I had a room full of clothes. How do you put it together? Um, you know, and it people see that lookbook and they said it feels like it feels like MB. Yeah. You know, it feels like your brand. And that's all I wanted from that. Now, just to have one place where it's all available, that's the goal. And it, it used to be my big old dream was like brick and mortar, but brick and mortar kills it's, more brands than, yeah, you yeah. know, and it's really hard. Uh, like my nightmare, the thing that wakes me up in the cold sweat is like what happened with Band of Outsiders, where it, to yeah. me and to the whole world, it looked like, wow, he made it. And I love Scott and what he was doing was so great. And you wake up and one day it's gone, just like poof, it's gone. And yeah. um, the store didn't even make it a year. And, um, you know, that could have been, that easily could have been me. That also factored into like, I got to do something to turn this into a business. You sure. Know? Like, um, so, you know, retail, brick and mortar, I think I can live without. But online <laughs> is so super important. Yeah. And the good, I mean, the good part is I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of other companies, will spend oodles of money in retail mm -hmm. to, to try to learn that mistake. And, and I don't know, I think it's, it's tough. Like, um, so I used to work at this other job not too long ago and mm -hmm. I was looking through my closet and I was like, Oh man, I have 16, 17 suits. And you know, I worked for Tom Brown for at one point and I had this old Tom mm -hmm. Brown stuff and I was looking through everything and I was like, I need to get rid of about 80 to 90% of This that. is so funny you're having this conversation. <laughs> I, I would really love to interview you sometime because you are, 
You're you have a very unique approach to how you put yourself together. Oh, thank you. And I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but um and don't take this the wrong way, but you actually shop more like a girl. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> than most no, guys. I appreciate it. In that you are very open and flexible with your with your concept of yourself. Yeah. Because in the time I've known you, um you were when I first met you, you were a hardcore Tom Brown guy. Yep. And then you really got into our stuff. Yeah. Hard. And then you were suddenly a Rick Owens guy. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. You, you know, no, and then you were true. then you were a three piece suit guy. Yeah. Like a custom suit guy. And I don't I don't know where you are now, but it's I always know, been right, fascinating watching you <laughs> because you're open to this idea of I'm not gonna be tied down to one thing i'm gonna i'm really gonna pay attention to this and get deeply involved in it like you really when you go there you go there you do a deep dive into that moment and that designer and you're you're committed (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that's that's an achilles heel of mine is is like i don't know how to like wade into a pool i Mm -hmm. basically jump off of a skyscraper into it like (laughs) yeah And then dry yourself off, climb yeah. up the ladder, and do it again off the other side. I'm, still trying, to figure, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing in but terms it, of that. But It's refreshing because yeah. there's not many guys that shop that way. A lot of guys pick their brand and die with that brand. You yeah. know, like, um, there's a lot of examples. But, like, you know, it's, and that's the big difference between how women shop and how men shop. Women are, are like, they're open to the idea of today I'm going to be you know, a Lone Van girl and tomorrow I'm going to yeah. be a Chanel girl and now Dior is, is looking interesting do, and Valentino is <laughs> looking interesting. There's <laughs> there's not that crazy brand loyalty that men have. Right. Um, plus, I think women might enjoy the experience of shopping more and I think you enjoy the shopping and the research. And I am the, a big uh, fan of shopping. So, <laughs> you know, you're, you're an atypical menswear consumer. Let's, yeah. let's put it that way. That's cool. Um, but but it's it's amazing that you don't just jump there's other guys that i would say jump from designer to designer but you actually really do the homework like your rick owens moment still confuses me (laughs) it confuses a lot of people i got really into rick and carol christian pool and like boris bijan sabri and like basically oh man i more like fell in love with trying to understand why people loved pattern making so much okay and i was like oh this makes like you know, in terms of like, because Rick Owens was a, was a pattern maker, and in mm-hmm. terms of like a leather jacket, there's a lot of leather jackets. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there's the Shop Perfecto, mm-hmm. there's your standard like military inspired jacket, but then there's these other ones that I was like, how how is this really a better leather jacket? Mm-hmm. And it really, at the end of the day, for me, it was more of understanding the cut. Mm-hmm. And Rick Owens had this cut, and then as I got into Boris Bijan Sabri, the uh, Persian Spanish. Or wow. Persian designer who manufactured in Spain, uh-huh. he was all about like trying to understand treatments of leather and like tumble, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. washing and going crazy with with his leather treatments mm-hmm. and his silhouettes and yeah. And I think for myself, you know, I I just was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well really do it and try to understand. But at the end of the day, I then look in the mirror and in a few years, and I'm like. Mm-hmm. 
what the hell do I have? I don't know what this is. No, this but sucks. <laughs> Does someone want this? <laughs> As I, no, you followed you followed menswear like some guys might follow sports. Yeah, that's you true. Know? And that's a that's the best analogy. You know, all all guys understand sports and all guys wear clothes, so it's yeah. it's an easy way to to get the average non clothing focused guy to understand what yeah. we do. You know, there's different players. All the time, yeah. And sometimes your team is up, sometimes your team is down. Sometimes they switch, switch players around. It's very true. But, um, right. You know. Well, this has been so much fun for me, oh, and I cannot here. thank you enough for doing this. My pleasure. Um, I just wanted to ask: Is there any other stuff you wanted to add or mention before we wrap up? Um, well, you know, I now am really enjoying instagram a lot so yeah. if anyone really wants to know what's going on please just follow me on instagram oh i'll make sure i i link you out i'm easy to i'm notes. easy to find um and you know i i still feel kind of like that outsider in men's where i'm still like when we're talking about what you're obsessed with i always keep an eye on what you're up to um and you know i i I'm just I'm I'm a consumer. This whole thing was right. trying to do things that I wanted myself. So, you know, questions from customers I I love, you know, you're still reading a, emails, you're still I still read emails. Guy. I don't I don't Google every day anymore cuz that's just masochistic. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, you know, I I just I I'm a normal guy. I'm part of this world. I'm you know, that's great. So, this is thank you again so much. This My has pleasure. been a ton of fun. All right, Jeremy. All right, we'll see you. Thank you. Bye. All right, that's it for this week's episode. You've been listening to Blamo. Thanks again to Michael for coming on. If you like what you heard, leave a review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast. Or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. I I love getting your emails. It totally makes my week. All right? We'll see you next week.